Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, director of the project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars working in the field. Uh, with us today is Liesl Hintz. She's uh, currently a professor at uh, Barnard College and will be moving uh, in the fall to uh, Johns Hopkins sites. She's the author of a forthcoming book on identity politics in Turkey. Uh, Liesl, uh, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So right around this time that we're talking, um, this is mid-April, um, Turkey has just gone through this referendum about uh, the executive presidency. It's a very tense time in Turkey. Now, you've been writing for quite some time about the evolution of the Turkish political arena. Tell us a little bit about what you think is really interesting in how Turkish politics has evolved over the last, uh, you know, the last decade or so. How did we get to this point? So it's been a really fascinating process to sort of be studying as it evolves. Um, You know, when the current ruling Justice and Development Party came into power in 2002, there was quite a lot of optimism in Turkey um, across quite a number of different elements of the political spectrum. Um, this was a professedly broad tent party. Um, you know, it its uh, leaders had come from one of the most anti-Western traditions of political Islam in the country, but you know had quite openly, explicitly said, "We are not a political uh, Islam-related party. We are conservative Democrats. We've moved away from that tradition." Um, and you know, in the first couple of years of their rule, we really saw a lot of policies in conjunction with that particularly in terms of reforms that were uh, sort of targeted at European Union accession. What we've seen, particularly in the second, third, um, and and fourth terms of AKP rule, um, is really a move away from that. Um, And I argue in my book that this is because the uh, AKP has been able to sort of take its fight outside to the international or foreign policy arena to try to remove some of the domestic obstacles to what I see as its political project for Turkey. And now that we're, you know, looking at a referendum, so kind of bookending that, looking at the end of the spectrum or the temporal period, we're seeing a party that has kind of consolidated not only in terms of single party rule, but one man rule, Um, a very personalistic uh, regime. Um, You know, we have President Erdogan, uh, who can now ostensibly be in power until 2029. So we've gone from a sort of representative, big tent, EU focused party to a incredibly hostile to the EU, um, you know, party that is focused much more on consolidating the power in the hands of the president. And that's happened in a very short amount of time. Now, the idea that uh, the AK party, uh, this mildly Islamist party, uh, kind of started off as being the most pro-European party, that's got to be surprising to a lot of people who might have expected the opposite. So, you know, it it fit in a tradition of Western political uh, and sort of transatlantic orientation within Turkey. But it was quite surprising that we saw this party that is, in fact, a successor to, you know, some of the parties that have been closed down by the Constitutional Court or kicked out of power by the military precisely for being parties in a political Islam tradition. So there was a lot of skepticism when the party first came into power, and now there's being quite a lot of I told you so's. You know, we shouldn't have necessarily bought into this narrative that the party had actually changed its intentions and its political identity project for Turkey. 
there's always a question, you know, has kind of power corrupted absolutely? And was this always the trajectory that the party was going to take? Um, but, you know, whatever sort of path it took to get here, we see really an unprecedented consolidation of authoritarian power. Um, and uh, I think, you know, as we're, we saw on Sunday, unprecedented electoral manipulation to ensure that that power stays in place. So how do you think that you go from, you know, the, the earlier period to where we are now? Um, you know, so for some people, the argument is that this is what Islamists do in power. And others look at it, as you say, this is simply a man who was in power for too long, became corrupt and, and entitled. I mean, how do you fit in the, uh, the kind of the ideological orientation against these perhaps more normal or conventional institutional uh, uh, explanations? So my focus in my research is um, the intersection of identity politics and foreign policy. And I do believe that identity and a particular what I call Ottoman Islamist understanding of identity shaped the domestic and foreign policy trajectory of the AKP in terms of prescribing and proscribing who is going to be our allies, who are going to be our enemies, what are the goals that we want to see at home. The way that I analyze that is that showing in the first years of AKP rule, we do see this very pro-EU um, orientation, but that that's actually a strategic way of, again, removing domestic, domestic political obstacles, such that it opens up the path for um, sort of domestic identity contestation and power consolidation at home. That being said, I don't think that, you know, we're not seeing a Turkey that's moving towards a theocracy. This isn't, you know, a lot of people have been writing that this is, you know, oh, Turkey is becoming Islamized and it's moving in that direction. Well, it's absolutely clear that there is a greater amount of space in the political sphere for uh, Islam, from the Imam Hatip or preacher training schools um, to lots, you know, forms of Islamic media and so forth, things that wouldn't have been acceptable, you know, say 10, 15 years ago. So we're definitely seeing that, but I think we can understand this trajectory much more in terms of authoritarian consolidation, um, with Islam being used as a sort of populist tool of mobilization, um, in terms of Recep Tayyip Erdogan being, you know, kind of a symbol of those politicians who were oppressed by the Kemalist secularist elite for a long time. Um, you know, he was removed from his mayorship in 1997 in Istanbul. Uh, he was put in jail for reciting an Islamist poem, supposedly. Um, so he can tell a narrative of the oppressed and rally people around him, people who feel as though they've been told they were backward or rural or uneducated or unenlightened because they're not, you know, the secular Kemalist elite. So that served as a very important mobilization tool. But, you know, we shouldn't understand what we're seeing in Turkey right now as a religious regime, um, much more uh, in terms of a personalistic, authoritarian, populist one. So it seems like in recent years, there's there's three moments that jump to mind that kind of inflection points where things seem to take different trajectories. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've actually written uh, about those for us and in, in, in for, for poll maps. Um, so let me ask you about each of them in turn and kind of how you think they helped lead us in this path. The first is the Gezi Park protest. The second is the uh, the election, uh, the, the, the 2015, mm-hmm. uh, which then helps to reignite the war with the PKK. And then finally, the failed coup, yeah. which seems to be the proximate 
uh, trigger of a lot of what's happening now. But I, but I think based on, based on your research, it seems like the Gezi Park moment seems to be an important inflection point in terms of reshaping Turkish identity politics. Very much so. I mean, the Gezi protests, again, were quite unprecedented. What we had seen was a relatively politically apathetic youth, um, you know, not a whole lot of contestation in the public sphere. And what's fascinating about Gezi is this sort of incremental level of frustration that was building up to the point that we just saw it spill over with this one particular moment. Um, you know, there had been incursions on personal freedoms, things having to do with abortion rights, things having to do with alcohol sales. And for the first time, people who didn't really think about politics or, or the political were being affected by this and therefore became engaged. And this is mostly like urban... Mostly urban youth in the Gezi uh, protests, but it's also worth noting that 80 of, 80, of the one, 80 of the 81 provinces in Turkey saw some form of mass protest during the Gezi Park uh era or, or the summer of 2013. So there was definitely um, sort of a, a nationwide uprising. And I think the best way to understand that is not necessarily something ideological, but rather a pushback against this kind of incremental absorption of power or consolidation of power. By this time, the AKP had won its third consecutive parliamentary majority. Um, you know, it was clear that they were no longer really paying attention to the EU as a democratic anchor. Again, there were these uh, incursions into daily life. And so what you saw was this, this sort of simmering pot, I think, ready for some sort of, of catalyst that, that allows it to erupt. And that was, you know, these, these images of protesters being beaten and their, their tents being burned, um, just really spreading like wildfire uh, across the country rapidly through the internet. And then the subsequent media silence. So police violence and media silence, I think, are the best way to understand Gezi. From an identity perspective, there's a coming together of a number of different groups, but there's not really a whole lot of coalescence that we see. There are identity, what I call identity red lines, that divide um, some of the, the, the protesters there. While there was this carnival-esque spirit of unity and coming together in opposition to the regime, there wasn't a whole lot of sense of what they had in common. Do you, did this damage Erdogan's legitimacy in any fundamental way, or was it something which he survived and then just moved on? So this is a really important question. Um, this is where we start to see the real increase in polarization, which I, um, at least in part, account for by the use of rhetorical vilification that Erdogan engages in, calling those who protest terrorists, their hooligans, their, their foreign spies, their Israeli lobby, their all this. So when you combine that with a, a media that is increasingly state-controlled, or at least has business links such that there's not a whole lot of, of democratic discourse or debate on television, you do have this polarization of people who are, are strongly supportive of the AKP and, in fact, approve of the measures being taken. Um, and one other instance that you didn't mention but that I would include are the 2013 corruption investigations, um, which the Gulen movement brings, uh, or the police and the judiciary-linked uh, Gulenists bring against the, the AKP and its members, um, and what's fascinating about that is you have these open allegations, clear recordings of ministers being involved in these schemes, you know, shoeboxes of millions of dollars being hid under bank owners' beds. And in the March 2014 election, the AKP consolidates its vote. 
And you have people saying, well, yeah, there might have been some corruption, but that's what we needed to do to get there. So there is this sense that anything is is fair game when it comes to consolidating Erdogan's power. So then in 2015, you have this really surprising election mm-hmm. result. The AKP doesn't win. Yep. Uh, and then that then leads uh, in, uh, in some fashion to the resurgence of the war with the PKK. And, and that was, you know, that seems like a moment where things could have gone another direction. Erdogan had actually done quite a bit to try and reach out to the Kurds and resolve that issue. And yet at that moment, things suddenly took this very sharp turn. Why do you think that is? Why, why did he go that direction? when faced with uh, his political challenge? Well, I think a lot of it um, can be summed up by his enthusiasm for this presidential project. If you look at the way that the relations were going between the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party delegation, um, the Kurdish delegation as sort of a larger representative of that, as well as the Turkish government, um, this was the, the, the primary case of cooperation, one we hadn't seen before. What happens due to a series of events, including the Turkish government's refusal to help um, defend Kurds in Kobani against ISIS incursion, is a general recognition on the part of the Kurds, and not just PKK by any means, but also the People's Democratic Party and all of those who would like to see a peaceful solution to this, is that the government doesn't have our back. Why should we have its? So why should we continue to kind of become suspect in the eyes of someone else in the country because we are kind of in negotiations with the government. Why should we do that if we don't believe that they're going to support our political causes as well? So what you see is the leader, um, Demir Tash, kind of saying, we're not going to make you president. Erdogan comes back immediately and says, I didn't recognize this process anyway. This isn't legitimate. And then you have these June 2015 elections, which are the, you know, a huge thumb in the eye for Erdogan, losing the AKP's parliamentary majority for the first time. And I remember my friends being so ecstatic and like the Kurds finally, you know, they passed the 10% threshold and they got 13%. This is amazing. And I just said, no, wait, wait and see what's going to happen because Erdogan is not going to accept this. And he didn't. And he was able to stall and stall and stall, not form a coalition government. And at the same time, begin bombing the begin bombing the PKK again in July of 2015. Now there's debate on who started it first, but there's a clear uh, clear evidence of the AKP bombing the PKK on the sa- at the same time that they're bombing ISIS. So the world's paying attention to the AKP bombing ISIS and finally joining the mm-hmm. effort against that while they're able to kind of get a rally around the flag effect with their nationalists because they're finally targeting the PKK again. So by the time you get to the November elections, you have a country that is incredibly polarized, that is sick of coalition governments that don't work, and that has nationalists who are now supporting the AKP because they've kind of flipped their policy on the Kurds. And then you get this failed coup attempt, and this sends everything into hyperdrive. It sends everything into hyperdrive in the sense that, well, from a lot of perspectives, I mean, there's a thousand conspiracy theories out there, but also from the perspective of Erdogan, no matter what sort of explanation you have for the coup attempt, has sort of carte blanche to get rid of all of the opposition that he wants. And he can do it under a state of emergency where he can also issue decrees and he can purge everything from the civil service, the military, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people affected by this. Um, The Academics for Peace movement, for example, which was a number of scholars who had signed a peace petition criticizing the government's use of force in the Kurdish southeast, they're rounded up. 
um, you know, anyone suspected of or owning a book or someone who might have taught at a Gulenist school, they're rounded up, but also people that have no relation to this whatsoever. So what you have is a series of sort of opposition lists that are transformed into coup-maker lists and therefore used to round up the opposition. So for Erdogan, it's kind of like a, a gift that he receives that he's able to quite cleverly take advantage of and therefore sort of, uh, again, use another way of eliminating his opposition back home. So now in the aftermath of the referendum, I mean, do you think that Turkey's identity and its uh, you know, identity politics have been fundamentally permanently changed? Or is this just another step in this you know, long-standing battle between different visions of, of Turkey? So that's the ultimate question. Um, and I think that this is not a fundamental change. I think, you know, even if you look at what actually happens with the 18, you know, amendments that are being changed in the Constitution, it's essentially a de jure institutionalization of a de facto regime that he's put in place under the state of emergency. So from an identity politics perspective, um, and also just sort of an institutional party politics perspective as well, not a whole lot has changed. Um, you know, there is this Ottoman Islamist project that guides the foreign policy and the domestic politics of Erdogan. I don't see, uh, you know, the opposition groups in terms of the Kurdish group, which I refer to as having a Western liberal identity, um, the Republican People's Party, which I say has a Republican nationalist identity, and then the Nationalist Action Party, which is the ultra-right um, group, which is actually supporting the referendum, having a pan-Turkish nationalist identity project, none of those are reconcilable. So I don't really see in the future, um, or I, should, I shouldn't say I don't see, but I'm, I'm not really optimistic about, um, you know, a really strongly united opposition that can, you know, come forward and challenge the AKP. Within that context, is it possible for Erdogan to establish a kind of a consensual or even like stable majoritarian uh, uh, vision for Turkey then? I mean, you, I think you make it clear why the opposition can't unite, mm -hmm. but uh, is he have an available coalition at this point? So this is a great question as well. Um, he he doesn't have the coalition that he would like to enact some of the reforms he would like in the future. He has been courting the, the nationalists, the, the Nationalist Action Party that I mentioned. Only some of them supported the referendum. There was actually quite a big split. Um, Meral Akshanar, uh, who's sort of a rival politician against Devlet Bacheli, who's aging and I think desperately in need of a support within his own constituency, um, she led a no campaign. And so you have splits there. What we know that the AKP is probably going to do is, and Erdogan has mentioned it repeatedly, is push for the death penalty to be reinstated because that's something that polls at about 65-70% across Turkey um, and would really be able to, to rally up a lot of support for him. So I think he has channels to further consolidate the regime. Um, the question is, how long will he stay in power? You know, right now, this could leave him in power up until 2029, possibly even longer, depending on some certain circumstances. Um, we suspect that he's probably grooming, um, you know, his son-in-law, uh, who's currently a minister, to, um, to take his place. Will he be willing to give up those reins? We know we've seen successive purges of his own party from those who don't agree with him. And I think this is important to, to kind of go back and understand the AKP's trajectory, which was that not everyone agreed with Erdogan. 
Abdulagut, who was um, who's arguably more of an Islamist politician than Erdogan, saw possibilities within the EU. Um, you know, was not happy about the way that the Gezi protest uh, was handled. Ahmed Davutoglu, former foreign minister, he's been sidelined as well. Um, so it's going to be fascinating to see, both from an institutional and from a personal perspective, how Erdogan plans to continue this, particularly given that Turkey, from an economic standpoint, is in a very fragile state. All right. Well, thanks. We've been speaking with Liesl Hintz of Barnard College and Johns Hopkins SAIS. Uh Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.